Hi, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelly Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and I really can't even tell you what a joy it is to be here with such a great group of ladies studying the scriptures together. There's no place else I'd rather be on this uh, day today. Now, many of you here today probably know the story of Corrie Ten Boom. She was a Dutch woman who was actually imprisoned in a German prison camp during World War II for her efforts to hide and save her Jewish friends and neighbors from the Germans after they invaded her homeland of Holland. Now, Corrie grew up in a pretty devout Christian home, and in fact, her family had a great reverence and respect for their Jewish friends and neighbors simply because they were God's chosen people in the scriptures. When uh, Germany invaded Holland and began to persecute all of their Jewish friends and neighbors, her father and Corey's brother, who was actually a pastor, got actively involved in trying to save and hide um, their Jewish friends who were being drug off in droves by the Germans. But Corey's own personal involvement in aiding and hiding her Jewish friends and neighbors only began after she witnessed a dramatic incident. One day when Corey was in her father's watch shop, she witnessed across the street the Germans enter the shop of her Jewish friend across the street. They drug him out at, at gunpoint threatened his life, and then proceeded to destroy every single thing in his shop, including um, uh, all the money that his family had. That was in November of 1941, and it was in that moment that Corey's life changed because it challenged, that moment challenged her Christian faith, and it launched her work with the Dutch underground resistance, and it led Corey at great expense to herself and her family to save many Jewish lives. Now we're going to resume our story of Exodus this morning and we're going to look at another dramatic moment, aren't we? You've been looking at it in your small groups. Another moment where God interrupts someone's life in order to accomplish his plans. We see that Moses this morning is living a pretty quiet life as a herder in Midian when God gets his attention, not just to save a few of his Jewish friends and neighbors, but to save the entire nation of Israel. So let's look at Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 together. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jephro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of the fire of, of the midst, in the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why, has the bush, why is the bush not burned? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of all the ites, and now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, if you were here last week, you heard Misty talk with us. We saw the birth of Moses, didn't we? We saw his adoption as the Pharaoh's daughter's son. We saw his flight into Midian after he had murdered an Egyptian. And there he marries the um, daughter of the priest. And last week, we saw that his name was mentioned as Reuel. Um, this week we see Reuel called Jethro. But make no mistake, this is the same priest. We're not really sure why his name changed between chapter 2 and chapter 3. But he's calling himself, Moses is calling him Jethro here in chapter 3. He is Moses' father-in-law. And Moses is living a pretty quiet, humble life as a herder. Now, Mount Horeb that uh, Moses mentioned here, where he has taken the flock, is actually another name for Mount Sinai, where Moses is going to later receive the Ten Commandments after he does actually accomplish the mission that God sends him on. Um, and that's probably why when Moses wrote Exodus here... Uh, he called it the mountain of God because he knew that eventually that is where he would meet God and receive the Ten Commandments. So as Moses hangs out with the herd here, he looks up and he sees a pretty astonishing sight. It's a bush that's burning, a thorn bush. But what's astonishing is that it does not burn up. When I was reading about this, I read several places that burning thorn bushes are not actually that unusual in the Sinai Desert where Moses was because the climate was hot and dry and arid. And these things would apparently spontaneously combust every now and then. But when that happened, they would burn up pretty quickly. It would be a flash fire. But this isn't a flash fire. And I have an idea that Moses watched it and watched it, and watched it, and then decided, I, I gotta get closer here and check this out. And as he does, God calls out to him. He actually calls Moses' name not once, but twice. Um, our God is a personal God. This is a great example of that. Um, he reaches out to Moses and doesn't say, hey, you. He calls him by his name because our personal God knows each and every one of our names, doesn't he? Now, verse 2 here says that it was the angel of the Lord. But this is not simply an angelic messenger. This is actually God himself. It's probably a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. 
such as we saw in Genesis chapter 16, I believe, with Abraham. Um, it's clearly God is speaking. We know that because the ground is holy. Uh, when we are in God's presence, we are in the presence of a holy God. He reminds Moses that and tells him to take off his sandals. He also tells Moses exactly who he is. He's the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob. Now, this would be a crazy, surreal experience under any circumstance, wouldn't it? If you were standing out there with the cows and all of a sudden God called you by name. But this is even more unusual because God has not spoken to anyone in the nation of Israel, according to our records in the scripture here, for 430 years. 430 years since Israel has last heard from their God. Um, as a Jewish nation, they had prospered and grown initially in Egypt, but now they are under oppression. They have called out time and time again to their God, and he has heard them, but he has waited to respond, and this is the moment. This is the moment. Now, there's actually going to be another 400-year period of silence uh, for in the future of the nation of Israel. You probably know what I'm talking about. It's at the end of the book of Malachi. There is 400 years after the prophets quit speaking until John the Baptist enters the scene to herald the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. But here... We see God break his 400 years of silence to talk to Moses from the burning bush. Now, this burning bush, we can make a couple of great observations about it because fire has always signified the presence of God in the midst of his people. Look on your verse sheet there with me. Genesis 15, 17 says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot, and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, and from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. That is God's presence passing um, there with Abram. And in Exodus 40, 38, we see this. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. There was no doubt that fire has been representative of the presence of God with his people, and that is the truth here as well. The fact that the bush was not consumed by the fire also has uh, some insightful meaning here because it's a picture of the nation of Israel that was really oppressed by Egypt for 430 years and it was not consumed either, was it? The nation of Israel grew and prospered and was not consumed by the oppression. Now, as God talks to Moses here from the burning bush, we get a great look straight into the heart of God. Moses is afraid. He does not want to look directly at God. But God is transparent. Even as Moses turns his face, God is transparent. And he reveals his whole heart for his people as he speaks to Moses here. He has seen their persecution. He has heard their cries for help. His, their suffering has truly broken God's heart. 
their God and our God is a God of compassion. And we get a great look at that here as he talks to Moses. God has heard his people and he intends to deliver them. And God's compassion doesn't just mean he's going to stop the oppression. It also means he's going to provide for them in an incredible way because he tells him he is going to send them to a land that's flowing with milk and honey. That's a great metaphor, isn't it? A land flowing with milk and honey. We're going to see it uh, over the next few weeks as we talk about their journey to that land of milk and honey. The picture that God is giving us here as he uh, uses that descriptive term is that the land he's taking them to is a land that's thriving. It's a land of grass and trees and herds and flowers and even bees. Even bees. It's a prosperous land, and it's a contrast to the land of Egypt where they have been residing for the last 400 years. But God's biggest surprise to Moses after the burning bush and after calling him by name actually comes in verse 10 because he says to Moses, Okay, I am going to deliver my people, but I'm sending you to Pharaoh to do the job. Wow. That had to have been um, set Moses back on his heels a little bit, don't you think? God has not simply interrupted Moses' quiet life here in Midian to share his transparent, compassionate heart with Moses. He's not gotten his attention just because he wants someone to chat with, has he? He's gotten Moses' attention because he intends to use Moses to be part of the plan that he has to save his people. Now, it would seem, if you look at this text pretty carefully, that God contradicts himself here. Because in verse 8, he says, I have come down to save, uh, to deliver out of the hands of the Egyptians and bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And then in verse 10, he says, but whoa, wait a minute, I'm sending you to do that. That's not really a contradiction because throughout the scriptures, we see God use men and women as his instruments of his divine plan. You know, with one word, we all know, don't we? With one word, God could have taken care of Egypt, couldn't he? He could have just blown them away and the Israelites would have been free to go wherever they wanted to go. I read uh, one theologian that um, described what God is doing here with Moses pretty well. He said this, God ever speaks to men and works for men through the instrumentality of men. Chosen agents are called into the inner circle to catch the divine thought and mirror the divine character. That's exactly the opportunity that God is giving Moses here to enter that divine circle, to hear divine plans, to catch uh, divine thought and mirror divine character. Um, a great opportunity. So Moses' life as a herder is interrupted in order to be an instrument of God's plan and the rescue of his people. But I want you to take notice that in verse 10, even as he tells him to go to the Pharaoh, he's not mentioning any plan um, for Moses to be the one that ushers them into the land of milk and honey. It is going to be Moses that is the deliverer of Israel out of Egypt. But our God is a sovereign, omnipotent God. And he knows, even as he calls Moses 
to this part of the plan, that it's not going to be Moses that crosses the Jordan River years from now and takes them into that land of milk and honey. Look at Deuteronomy 32, 48 on your verse sheet. That very day, the Lord spoke to Moses, go up this mountain of the Abram, Mount Nebo, which is the land of Moab opposite Jericho and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession and die on the mountain which you go up on and be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I'm giving to the people of Israel. Moses will be the deliverer of Israel, but he's not going to be the one that finishes the journey with them. And God is careful not to lay that out as part of the plan here in verse 10. So it's an ordinary day. God has gotten Moses' attention. He's broken a 430-year period of silence. He's called Moses to be part of a divine plan. And we have a lesson here, don't we? We have a lesson as we watch God interrupt Moses and use him as part of his plan. And that lesson to us is be ready. Be ready for God to interrupt any day and every day, maybe all day, any day and every day. You know, Moses and Corey Tinbin both got up on those mornings that God interrupted them. They probably ate breakfast, brushed their teeth, went about their day, but they both allowed God to get their attention with something that was a little bit out of the ordinary. They noticed it and they stopped. They allowed his interruption to lead them into being part of God's plan to change people's lives. You know, God is really at work in the lives of people around us all day, every day. Look to the woman to your right and to the left. God is at work in that woman's life. When you drive your car, look at the car next to you. God is at work in that person's life. Our job, just like Moses' job, is to be ready for that interruption. And when we're ready, he's going to use us as part of his plan to change people's lives. Okay, let's keep reading. Let's look at um, verses 11 through 15. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? But he he said, but I will be with you. This shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, Moses doesn't exactly say, yes, sir, I'm ready to go here, does he? Um, he actually, I think, is just in shock by God's interruption and plan to send him to Pharaoh. You know, 
Moses knows a little bit about Pharaoh, doesn't he? Maybe not this particular Pharaoh, but he's been in that household. He knows you don't just bust in one day and order the Pharaoh to do something um, that you don't want to do. He also remembers that the people of Israel did not consider him a leader um, among them, did they? He uh, probably has a pretty distinct memory of that. Um, and he blurts out his objection right here. He doesn't feel he has the ability to change Pharaoh's mind or the authority among the Israelites to be their leader. Now, Moses' objection was pretty quick, pretty quick, but God's response is pretty quick too. He doesn't miss a beat either. Um, he comes back with two promises to Moses that we see in verse 12. And the first one, he says right off the bat, hey, I am going to go with you. As I said earlier, our God is a personal God. He's a powerful God. He never leaves us alone. We have that promise in our scriptures, and God offers it right here to Moses. He said, I'm going to personally be with you. And then the second promise he makes is actually a look into the future, something that I think will encourage Moses as he finally goes about this plan. He promises Moses that someday he was going to return to that very mountain where God was speaking to him from a burning bush and worship him there once more. Now, throughout this journey to Egypt and to Pharaoh, it was going to take faith on Moses' part to remember that promise and to believe in it. But I have to think that he held on to this promise from God and that it gave him great hope and encouragement because if he was going to one day hear God's voice again on that mountain, it would mean that Pharaoh had not cut his head off, didn't it? It would mean that the nation of Israel and the elders had believed him. Now, since God hasn't spoken to the people for over 400 years, it's pretty understandable that Moses would think, they are not going to believe me. I've been gone for 40 years. I was never really a part of them. God hasn't spoken. Now, I'm just going to come back in and tell them, you have spoken to me. So he wants to know what God's name is, what to tell them God's name is. And names were a significant thing in a Middle Eastern culture. God gives a couple of incredible responses here. And the first one that he gives is, he says, I am who I am. Now, we all know that's not a proper name. None of us have named our children, I am who I am. And God is not giving Moses a proper name here. What he's giving him with that is the nature and essence of who tr God truly is. He's self-existent. He's unchanging, he's eternal, he's boundless, he's timeless in duration. He's faithful and true to his promises, both now and forever as creator God. I am who I am. Speaks all of that to Moses about the nature and essence of the God he is speaking to. His God is an absolute, unchanging, eternal God and these words provide the meaning for the next thing that the Lord says to Moses, which is, he says, I am the Lord. Now, you're going to notice in your text right there in your Bible that the Lord is in all capital letters. And that signifies that this is the Hebrew translated, as we say it, Yahweh. It's Y-H-W-H -H, uh, in the Hebrew 
we would speak it Yahweh. So whenever you see the Lord in capital letters in your Bible, you're going to know that is Yahweh. And God is giving meaning to Moses and the nation of Israel forever here that he is the self-existent, boundless, eternal creator God. Now, there have been generations before Moses. If you're very detail uh, uh, oriented and observant, you'll notice a couple of places back in Genesis where your Bible has the Lord in capital letters. Yahweh is used. But the full meaning of that is not given until God reaches in to take his people out of bondage in Egypt, and it's given to Moses right here. Deb's going to talk more about it when she comes up and talks to us in chapter 6 in a few weeks. Up until now, the nation of Israel has mostly known God by the name El Shaddai, or God Almighty. And occasionally, they would call him Adonai before now. But now... From this moment always, they're going to know that their God is Yahweh, the self-existent, eternal God that will redeem them. The third thing that Moses uh, learns here is one more time, God repeats himself, that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Israelites for centuries now had been living among a pagan people, and that pagan people had worshipped countless gods all day, every day. And God wants Moses to convey he is the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of their fathers. Now, these five verses here are interesting because they begin with Moses saying, who am I that I should go and rescue uh, your people? Because Moses feels, and probably rightly so, inadequate ill-equipped and overwhelmed for what God is sending him to do here. But these five verses end with God spelling out for Moses his complete adequacy for any mission, anywhere, anytime. And certainly his complete adequacy for Moses on his way to Pharaoh This is a truth for all of us, isn't it, ladies, to put in our hearts and our minds. It's not who we are. It's not who we are. We are Moses. We are inadequate. We are ill-equipped. We're overwhelmed for the things that God asks us to do in our lives. But it's who God is whenever we're accomplishing ministry. God did not pick Moses because he thought, hey, this is a guy that could outfox Pharaoh. He didn't pick Moses because as he saw him sitting all by himself with a cow in the Sinai desert, he thought, this guy is a great leader. He didn't think any of those things. God picked Moses because he was simply a man that God knew he could use and mold and display his power through. He was a man whose faith was going to grow as he depended on God's divine power instead of looking at his own inadequate, um, overwhelmed heart. Our job, when God interrupts our day, like we were talking about a few minutes ago, our job, when God uses us to change lives, is just like Moses, is to remember who God is, that he's self-existent, boundless, eternal, filled with power as our creator God. Our job is to stop looking at ourselves 
and our inadequacies. Adequacies. When we remember who God is, we become women that God can mold and use as part of his plan to change lives around us every day. Okay, let's keep reading. Let's look at verse 16. (coughs) Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt and I I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of all the ites and a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." Um, So Moses has this huge, overwhelming mission, but God isn't leaving him to figure it out on his own. He didn't say, okay, now you need to get a battle plan here. But I hope Moses is taking some notes down there in the sand, writing down a few things, because God gives him some pretty detailed instructions here, doesn't he? His first instruction is, of course, to go and gather the elders of the nation of Israel and tell them this story. Tell them that God has appeared to him in a bush that was not consumed by fire. He called him by name and share what he has learned about God, that he is Yahweh, the self-existent, boundless creator God of their fathers. God also writes the script here for Moses' complete conversation with the elders. He does not want Moses to ad-lib, does he? He's supposed to tell them of God's concern for the nation of Israel and his plan to rescue them. And he also promises Moses here some more things that will encourage him. He promises him that the elders will listen to him. And that means that Moses doesn't have to spend his entire journey to Egypt saying to himself, this is a waste of time. God has already told him what is going to happen. God tells him they will listen. He also gives him instructions to not go to Pharaoh by himself, but to take the elders and go to the king of Egypt. And he scripts out his talk with the Pharaoh here as well. It's interesting that Moses is not supposed to tell Pharaoh, hey, God is going to rescue us and take us out of Egypt and lead us to a land of milk and honey, is he? He's just supposed to tell the Pharaoh um, that they're going to go a three days journey out, which they definitely are, where they can worship their God. God doesn't um, have Moses talk to Pharaoh about returning after that three days either. He leaves that part of the equation out as well. 
He just has him tell uh, Pharaoh about leaving Egypt. Now, God's omnipotent is also in view. We've seen it already, but it's also in view in verse 18. Because he actually tells Moses the outcome of his visit. Pharaoh's not going to believe you unless God influences Pharaoh with the power of his mighty hand. He foretells the ten plagues in verse 20. That's what he's talking about here when he says that he is going to use wonders that will strike Egypt. He also tells Moses about his divine favor. They are going to be wealthy because of God's divine favor. Now think back to me with uh, to Genesis. Uh, what happened when the nation of Israel entered Egypt? They had God's divine favor through Joseph, didn't they? And the Pharaoh opened up his storehouses and gave them everything they wanted when they came into Egypt. He gave them the land that they wanted. He gave them um, places to live in the fertile Nile Delta. He broke open the wealth of Egypt when they came. And now God's divine favor is going to break open the wealth of Egypt as they leave. Now, there's an important lesson here for Moses and for all of us today. All of us that are standing here like I am thinking, oh gosh, this means God is going to ask me to do something out of my comfort zone, isn't he? I've seen what he did to Moses. I've heard that lesson. And I'm going to leave here today and I'm not going to look at anyone. I'm going to make sure I don't have a chance to have um, a burning bush in my life. But the great lesson here, uh, which is an encouragement to me, is that when God has a plan he wants us to be part of, what happens? He doesn't just let us flounder around and make it up, does he? Um, he doesn't just hope, well, she used to be a pretty sharp gal. I think maybe she'll figure it out. No, he's going to be there with us. He's going to write the script. He's not going to make us ad lib. He's going to instruct us. He's going to direct our words and our messages, and he's going to give us favor whenever the plan needs God's favor. Uh, 12 or 13 years ago, the women's ministry here at Christ Chapel began a small plan to teach a women's Bible study in downtown Fort Worth, hoping that it was God's plan as well. Uh, it was hard to do those first few months because we didn't really have a place to teach a Bible study in downtown Fort Worth, but we scrambled around every week and found a room here or there that we could do it in and tried to get ladies to come to it. It wasn't very long before we received an anonymous phone call that someone was going to, for a short time, provide us a permanent space for that Bible study. And then Christ Chapel, for 10 years after that, uh, provided the lease for that permanent space that we were initially given. Well, a couple of years ago, it became evident uh, that downtown Bible study was outgrowing that space. And we didn't really have any options in our human minds for anything else uh, to do in order to enlarge that space. And then one Thursday afternoon around four o'clock, I got this phone call unsolicited and from someone I didn't know. Um, and in the space of a few days, we not only had a 
space in downtown Fort Worth that was over twice as big as our original space, but this unsolicited source had provided all the funds, which were significant, to remodel that space just exactly as we needed it. So it's become pretty clear to me that God has a plan to have a women's Bible study in downtown Fort Worth. And he is going to make that plan happen. I don't have to scheme or um, uh, devise things to make it happen. When it's God's plan, he provides favor and makes it happen. And he gives instructions and anything else that's needed. When we're part of God's plan... Our job is just to listen carefully, just to listen carefully, and then to trust his promises. Trust his promises. We don't have a burning bush, do we, that um, he's going to speak to us out of, but we do have a whole book. He went further, didn't he? He wrote it down for us. This is better than a burning bush because we have his um, instructions and his promises right here in this word that we can depend on. Our God's plans are trustworthy. Look at Psalm 3311 on your verse sheet. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Okay, we're going to read a few more verses in chapter 4. Look at verse 1 in chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not listen to me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. And so he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the, on the dry ground." Okay, now after all this conversation that Moses has had directly from God himself, he's still not getting the point here, is he? He's still really struggling. After listening to God's detailed instructions and his promises, it seems like he's even more overwhelmed than he was when they started out. Instead of giving him confidence in the fact that God knows what's happening here, Moses doubts himself even more. He doubts himself even more. This passage encourages me because God is pretty patient with Moses, isn't he? He just keeps listening to him. He just keeps giving him encouragement. And he gives him even more encouragement here. He says, I've given you instructions. I've given you promises. 
Now I'm going to give you miraculous signs. And so the first miraculous sign he gives him is to throw the staff down and it becomes a snake. And Moses runs from it because snakes are the things we all hate the most, aren't they? Um, We see our first inkling that Moses has finally taken his eyes off himself here and places his faith on God when God tells him to pick up that snake and he actually does it. That was an act of faith because we know that Moses was scared. He had already run from it. Um, I'm not sure I could have done that. I'm not sure I could have done that. A few years ago, I really hate snakes. I know many of you feel the same way. We were at a prayer retreat a few years ago, and um, I had gone outside to light the campfire for us to sit around, and Deb Haygood and a few gals were up on a little rise by the cabin, and they began to yell at me and wave their hands, and um, deaf woman that I am, I could not hear a word they were saying, but I just kept looking at them thinking, what are they talking about until I saw the big copper copperhead that was headed down that little slope towards me. So um, when I need to be, I'm sharp, and I got out of the way of the copperhead and decided I would go get the camp guy to come kill the snake, but it was almost dark, and I didn't want that snake uh, to get away because we would have all stayed up all night thinking it was in the cabin with us. So I asked a couple of gals, and she doesn't even remember this, but the only gal of faith I could find that night that would watch that snake was Vanita Jones, and Vanita, (laughs) Vanita kind of parted the bushes there and stood there and watched that snake until the guy came and killed it. Vanita was our hero um, that night. It's totally, she's such a humble gal, it's out of her mind completely. She's uh, forgotten it. Even my gal of faith, Vanita, would have not have picked up that snake if God had um, asked her to. Moses um, picks up the snake, but God knows he needs another sign. And so the next sign is the sign of the hand in his jacket that becomes leprous. And actually, that was probably more horrifying than a snake for Moses because leprosy was a disease that ruined your life forever. It was incurable. You were kept outside the camp for the rest of your life. Your life was over, but just as quickly as it had become leprous, God supernaturally healed it. This was an even greater sign than the sign of the snake staff becoming a snake. And God himself acknowledges that because if you look here at the text, he says, God said to Moses, if they don't believe you or they don't believe the sign of the snake, maybe they will believe this. This is such an incredible um, sign. But that's not the last sign that God gives Moses. He knows that um, this is going to be a time when Moses needs a full complement of God's miraculous signs. And the final sign that he gives Moses has to do with the Nile River. Now, you have to realize that the Nile River was an incredible uh, life-giving source for the nation of Egypt. They depended on it day in and day out. It was the source of their everyday life and productivity. 
captivity, if there was anyone that had power over the Nile River, it would prove that their power had to come from God himself. And so that's the final sign that God gives uh, Moses here. He gives him power over the Nile River to take water from the Nile River and it will become like blood. That would prove for the Egyptians once and for all, um, hopefully, that Moses' power actually was from God. So God has patiently heard Moses. He's given him instructions. He's given him promises. He's given him three incredible signs here. So how does our man Moses respond? Let's look at verse 10, I believe, in chapter 4. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow in speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. Take in your hand this staff which you shall do signs. Um, Moses' faith in picking up the snake was short-lived, uh, wasn't it? Because he cannot resist one final complaint to the Lord in verse 10. And it's a foolish one in light of all that God has given him. He insists that he's not an eloquent speaker. Now, this is a man that has been raised uh, in Pharaoh's household for 40 years. He had the most incredible education the world had to offer. This is obviously just an excuse to get out of the job that God is calling him to. Um, Look at Acts 7.22 on your verse sheet. This is Stephen refuting Moses' words here. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So Moses is using a foolish excuse here to dodge his calling, to dodge his calling. But God's response to Moses points him back one more time to the truth that Moses doesn't have to be a skillful or adequate speaker. He just has to be obedient. And that's true for all of us when we're called by God. We don't have to be skillful. We don't have to be um, anything but obedient and willing. Uh, it's truly God that's going to do it all because it's, he's creator God and sustainer God. He's the God that has made Moses' mouth. I love that quote in that verse. And obviously he can put uh, words in it. I have a great quote from theologian F.B. Meyer. Um, F.B. Meyer says this about this passage with Moses. He says, cherish the lowliest thought you choose of yourself but unite it with the loftiest conception 
of God's all-sufficiency. That was all God was asking Moses to do here as he accepted his calling. It didn't matter what Moses thought of himself. It mattered what he thought of God. God's message in Moses for Moses stays the same in verse 12. What does he say one more time? Go. He says, go one more time. And he says he'd go with him. Unfortunately, Moses ups the game here, doesn't he? And finally, after all these verses and all these conversations and all these promises, he crosses the line with God and he finally makes God angry because he says to God, send someone else. Now, I guess he thought if he used the word please that God would hear him. Uh, Please send someone else. I say that to my littles all the time when they want fruit snacks. Please, please fruit snacks. Um, And it it works for them, but it does not work for Moses here. Um, Just like Jonah, if you think of the story of Jonah, Jonah was trying to get out of his calling and God pursued him. God is not going to allow Moses to back out of the plan that God has for his life and decline his calling. Honestly, I think that's grace in our lives that God does not let us decline his divine calling, does he? So God is creative. Rather than let Moses decline his calling, he calls Aaron, Moses' older brother, to the picture as his spokesperson. And we're going to see in the weeks to come as we continue to study Moses and Aaron that Aaron does become a help to Moses. But we're also going to see that Aaron also causes some problems and some trouble and some pain, not only for Moses, but for the entire nation of Israel. Moses would have been better served if he had simply accepted God's calling and been obedient um, to serve God. Uh, God's power is greater than anything or any person we encounter. And if Moses had simply called on that power to accomplish God's plan, he would have been better off. Now, I think almost everyone in the church knows the story of Moses and the burning bush. It's one of those stories we all grow up hearing, probably outside in the secular world. They know the story of Moses and the burning bush as well. It's a memorable story when we think about it. But what I want to stick in our hearts and our minds today is not the phenomena of a bush that simply did not burn up and God talked out of. But what I want to stick in our hearts and our minds today is the phenomena of a God who uses ordinary men and women to carry out extraordinary plans to rescue the lost and change people's lives. So when God interrupts our day, when God calls out our name, because he knows our names, doesn't he? We can know that he has a plan And we can say yes to him in obedience, uh, not rejecting our great calling. And we can rejoice that he is going to allow us to be part of his great plan. Look at Jeremiah 29, 11 on your verse sheet. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. When God asks us to go, we can go. Thanks, ladies.